Hi, and welcome to this episode of the Comedy Defects Podcast. My name's Winter, I'm the host of the show. This is episode 66. Uh, yeah, I recorded this about, oh, it must be about a year ago, uh, with the wonderful Lynn Ruth Miller. And she is probably one of the oldest comedians, maybe the oldest comedian alive, um, still gigging. And she is very funny. She's great. We talk about her act. We also talk about how she was gigging with Amy Schumer and some, some, some wonderful little life lessons, little life nuggets, little things to just help you get through maybe the day or whatever job you're kind of doing. There's some little comedy tips in there as well. She was on Britain's Got Talent and Simon Cowell gave her some advice and we talk about that too. And, and it was weird. It's weird when you're talking to someone and you're, you're, kind of, you're connecting with this, the person and then they start mentioning names that you are... <laughs> Basically what happened was she mentioned a name that uh, I'm about to have on this podcast as well. And I was like, oh, that's a bit of a coincidence. I don't know if you believe in synchronicity or something like that, but you know, things happen in an order to, depending on what you do in life. It's sort of like a butterfly effect type thing. I don't necessarily subscribe to it, but it was a massive coincidence. They mentioned this person and they are the next person that's going to be on this podcast randomly. Lynn Ruth Miller did not know that. And there was a moment in the podcast, I don't know if you can, might be able to tell, when Lynn is mentioning a somebody or a place and I managed to just bingo it straight out of the air. Boom, I've got that. And I was like, I was, you can hear my voice. I was very pleased with myself. Got it first time as well. It's nice when those things happen. I love it. <laughs> but I had a lot of fun talking to Lynn. She's a, a, an accomplished author. She was a journalist and she writes a blog. She's doing loads of stuff. She's an artist. She does loads of things. She just loves life. She's a, a massive animal lover as well. And uh, I just got talking to her. It was just wonderful to, to talk to her for the, like about an hour and 15 minutes. I didn't have to ask her many questions. She was really forthcoming with everything, very open. Oh, it just it was so much so fun to talk to her. And uh, I could have talked to her for a lot longer, but she had to go. But um, I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, this is episode 66. I'm not really going to talk much about me this intro because it's a quite a long one anyway and i'm going to save that for another podcast uh, so i hope you enjoy this episode with lynn ruth miller comedian i think she's 86 now she's absolutely hilarious if you ever see her on a bill somewhere go and see her live she's absolutely lovely and very very funny so this is episode 66 with lynn ruth miller enjoy Lynn Ruth Miller, welcome to the Comedy Defect. Thank you for having Thank me you in your place. Much. And how are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. I just got back from Dublin. I'm on my way to Germany. And the exciting thing about all this is that I'm going to be teaching a class in Frankfurt, and he's got 18 students. Uh, in contrast to that, I'm also supposed to be teaching a class on Sunday, which JW3 neglected to inform me what time it was. I thought that was nice. And uh, nobody signed up. <laughs> oh, so no, nobody. I have done nothing to promote it since right. I had it at the wrong time. Right. I thought it was at noon. Turns out it's four, which is better for me. Right. Nobody signed up, and in Frankfurt he had eighteen signups right away. So uh, where are you from? Lynn? I'm from actually from Toledo, Ohio. Right. Uh, if you remember Mash Slinger or something. Was that his name? Stinger? Slinger? Yeah, I think, I'm not sure. I don't know it that well, but I know of yeah, it, yeah, for sure. the stupid one. Yeah, right. He was from Toledo, too. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Toledo is awful. Um, but I spent the last 30 years in um, San Francisco. Since 1988, which is almost the last 30 years, I've been coming to the Edinburgh Festival. That's how this whole thing began. Wow. Because I was a punter at the Edinburgh Festival for maybe two or three years. 
And then I have a master's degree in journalism. Hmm. So I became a reviewer. And anybody that knows the Edinburgh Festival, Brian McMaster, who was the head of the whole thing, hmm. was one of my buddies. Uh, and I used to say, do you know who I am? He said, yes, I know who you are. You're that American with a loud voice. You know, he didn't say that, but I said, yeah, he's lovely. I knew Charles McCarris. Uh, he, he conducts St. Martin's in the field. It was very exciting for me. But anyway, so I started actually doing comedy at the festival in 2005, uh, but I had started comedy in 2003. And that was when I was 70. And now I, it's my profession. Now I... I work at it. I'm a journalist, mm. and um, I've written books. Mm-hmm. I've written 11 novels, and I have, I think, something like seven nonfiction books. Mm. Uh, and I'm in anthologies. I'm in a lot of anthologies. What about, what are your books about? Well, they're fiction. One is about uh, anorexia, because I had it. Right. Another is The Late Bloomer, because I am. Uh, and then the other ones haven't been published. It's funny, novelists, I, I was listening to uh, Ian McEwan mm. in Beijing, believe it or not. They're doing a book talk, and it's Ian McEwan, which is one of my favorite. Mm. I read whatever I can by him. Uh, and he was saying, the novel is the last bastion of being able to get inside another person's head mm. and actually living vicariously, living that portion of his life that the novel is about. Hmm. And I said, because I was in a thing, I don't believe that that's a major uh, selling point anymore. Uh, with Facebook and Instagram and uh, Skype, and hmm. it's more me. It's more about me. We're not interested in getting into the other person's psyche, hmm. uh, the other person's conflicts. One of the most beautiful books, and I probably have the title on it, I think it's about a child or something like that. It's about this man that goes shopping and when he looks, his little kid is gone and she's been stolen. And the whole novel is just about his coming to terms with this twist of fate that just destroyed him. Uh, So you don't get that. So I've written a lot Mm -hmm. of books and they're all reflective of the way I was thinking at that time. Mm. And I was writing them when I was... I was in my 50s and my 60s, right around 55 to 65. Mm. I spent 10 years writing novels. And then my, my other books are, I'm in a lot of anthologies, just arbitrary things, being a single woman, mm. uh, being a, a comedian. Uh, one of the books that I think, I think I'm in that book, or it's about being childless. I have no children and women uh, often. That's in this blog that was just in there. Women often, when they get to be 40 and 50, if they have no children, they think, oh, I missed something. <laughs> yeah, what you missed is a cracked pelvis and a sore <laughs> vagina, but I, it's up to them. What they want, that's what they're about. But the two that are out is the one about the eating disorder and the one about being a late bloomer. Mm. Um, and then I have books of short stories. So, so I promote those books. Mm. When you write the books, you promote them. Mm. And after I finish trying to sell the books... Um, and most of my sales, whenever I tell this, I always forget to say this, I've sold thousands of books. And the first book alone paid for everything. Mm. But mostly online mm. or word of mouth. So when I was doing these book signing things, nobody was ever buying anything. And after and after I finished the little speech and the little reading, um, I would tell jokes. And they were 
I, Logan Murray finally gave me the name for them. They were third person jokes. A man walks into a bar, that kind of, and everybody loved it. They never brought any books, but they kept asking for more. So I was surfing the net because by that time you could. You have to realize I started all this when you couldn't surf the net. When I wrote the first novel, I did it on floppy disks. It was on an Apple IIc. Mm. But anyway, so by that, that time you could surf the net. I was looking for new jokes. And I saw a thing called, we were talking about this, San Francisco Comedy College. Mm. And I frankly don't believe you can teach anyone to mm. be funny. You can teach a mic technique. You can teach them, I guess, the rule of three. You can't teach them the surprise thing because that comes naturally. Mm. So I thought, remember, I'm a journalist mm. with a master's degree in journalism from one of the top universities in America. I mean, to me, it's the top university. It's Stanford University. Right. So I think, you know, when I went there, I thought, oh, I will get a job. And I never, ever got a job in a newspaper, ever. I've always been free that. So I'm looking and I'm saying, aha, San Francisco Comedy College, that's a ripoff. I'm going to write, I'm going to expose them. And this is going to be my big journalistic breakthrough. Hmm. So I called the guy, and his name was uh, Curtis Matthews, and I liked him a lot. And I said to him, I would like to take your class. And he called back, and he just heard my voice. And he called back, and he said, I just love small Jewish women. <laughs> you got it, Buster. Went there, and I did the class. And to be fair, when I walked in, I made some kind of smart remark, and he said, I can't teach you anything. Mm. But I took the class, and it felt more like consciousness raising. I didn't feel that he sharpened anybody's sense of mm. funny. Mm -hmm. I write about that, by the way, in the blog. I think that of the Irish, because you're Irish, mm. I think they have a very particular kind of comedy. They're very funny, and I think that Irish women mm -hmm. are unbelievably funny. Mm. What is it, Ashley B.? Yeah. Oh, yeah. you can't beat her. Eleanor Tiernan. Eleanor Tiernan, yeah. And oh, my God. Neve Maron's very good as well. Who? Neve Maron. You know Neve Maron? I don't know her. I think she's from Cork as well, I think. But th those two women can mm. get up at Tiff Stevenson's new material thing, brand new material, and just funny. I can't do that. It takes me forever to make something funny. So when I took it, at the end, there was a final exam. Mm. And for all stand-up comedy things, a final exam, you perform. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I've been a college professor, so getting up in front of an audience was not a problem. Mm. What to do with the mic was a problem, because mm. I would be, you know, the mic would be over here, and I'd be talking over here. Mm. So when I got up there, because the other eight or nine, well, they were 18 years old, mm. they had nothing to say. Mm -hmm. And then I got up there, and I just did a set, mm. because I was the only one that did a set. I completely ripped up the room. They were so happy. But they all went there to support their friends, and they, it was a quiet night. Mm -hmm. And then I got up there, and I made them laugh, but it was just because, only because I had material. It was not because I was that funny. The thing that I loved is some kid came up and said, would you sign my ticket? And I thought, oh, my God, he loves me. And I didn't have to cook him dinner. <laughs> didn't have to change the sheets. Yeah. I'm doing this again. Yeah. And remember, I'm 70 years old at this point. Mm -hmm. I have a pension. I taught school. I have a pension. I'm retired in the States. That would be something that would be different here because people wouldn't think of it this way. I was driving. I drive everywhere. This is a big adjustment for me here. 
So what else do I do at night? I'm not afraid of the dark mm. like every other old person I've ever met. I got in the car and I went and I did free open nights and I did it for two years. I never even expected to get paid. I just did it. I think the first time I ever actually made any money was when I did the Edinburgh Festival in 2003 and that was August of 2003. It was called Weapons of Laugh Destruction. Right. Was that an hour show or? No, it wasn't just me. It was, it was a bunch of American comics. I called up Hart, Hartley Kemp. Kemp? And I absolutely love him. Hmm. And I said, how would you like comedy from San Francisco? And he's thinking Robin Williams, Dillis Diller. Hmm. And he got people that were even more inexperienced than I was. They couldn't tell a joke. It was a terrible show. <laughs> you only do 20 minutes each, that usual oh, three-hander. Well, we there were four of us. Oh, four, yeah, yeah. So how much would it have been? Oh, 15? 15, 10, 15 or something each year. Yeah. Great. And yeah. I ended it with a striptease. Because <laughs> that year... That year was the year of the burlesque. Right. And I sing a song, uh, called, it's by Johnny Mercer, and it's called There's a Burlesque Theater, and it's a spoof about a burlesque. My favorite line in it is, uh, take her out when it's over, she's a peach when she's dressed. I love that. In, in the song, she's taken off all her clothes. So I ended with that. I would do comedy in the beginning, and then I would come in for this three-minute thing. I really, I was invited everywhere, because at that time... The Odeon Theater was celebrating its 70th birthday, so I jumped out of a cake. Yeah, great. For the birthday. <laughs> and um, so that was my first taste of success. Yes, right. And then I went on to try out for the paying gigs in San Francisco. Mm. And this was a natural progression. So I would try out for the paying gigs, but I was doing a bunch where I wasn't getting paid as well. I just really I wanted to do it. And then I pursued it as you pursue any kind of a career. And I tried out for the punchline, which is Live Nation, which is actually international. But they're the ones that run the paying comedy clubs in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. I tried out. I did a couple free gigs for her. And then she had me actually audition as an opener. In America, the MC is the opener as opposed to here. Mm-hmm. It's the lowest paying, and it is a set. You don't talk to them. They're not the set. The audience isn't the set. Yes. In America, their first remark, if they heard an MC here, is, I paid to hear comedy. I didn't pay to hear Joe Schmertz mm-hmm. tell me that he's got a knee ache. Yeah. I didn't pay to do that. British people just love it. They say, oh, God, that's funny. Yes. So anyway, so I tried out to be an opener, and Amy Schumer was headlining. And Amy Schumer said to Molly, the booker, who didn't much like me. She mm. she wasn't that enthusiastic. My jokes were about being old, and she didn't think it was funny. And Amy said to her, that woman is really funny. Mm-hmm. And then she said to me, when you have a punchline, if no one laughs, you wait. Mm. You know as well as I do, if no one laughs, you hurry on to the mm. next one. You give them like one second. And I'm noticing that a lot in Dublin. There's a line I do that takes a little thought, but it's ridiculous. It's, the life guy pulled me out of the pool. I talk about how wrinkled I am. The life guy pulled me out of the pool, and he said, Oh, my God, you've been in here a long time, meaning I'm so wrinkled. I've been that the, <laughs> It takes a little. Mm-hmm. And I noticed at this time I was doing comedy... Uh, I was Whelan's, and I was about to go into the next part, mm. which is I'm so wrinkled 
Mm-hmm. Um, I took my bulldog to the vet and they gave me the shot. That's the next part. <laughs> but she said, I realized, wait, it took them a while to figure out that I was water soaked. And that, you know, that, that's a, and the, and the other one, there's another one that I do that is, oh, when I talk about how you have lapses, another one that if I wait, I'll get a laugh. I talk about how you have lapses, you know, and I say, there I was in my fuzzy, and this is the setup, as you well know, the setup is when they're supposed to laugh, but it's funny. There I was in my fuzzy bunny slippers and my chin strap. That means I was naked. I'll never forget, I think, uh, where they got it right away, but usually I have to wait. As they have to sort of absorb, if I'm in my fuzzy bunny, the chin strap is what people used to wear to get rid of a double chin. And, and you just, just, you just have to imagine mm. it. You don't have to know anything about my mm. chin strap. I'm naked. And mm. then I go on to the next one. It makes the punchline a lot funnier, but you really don't need to absorb that. Mm. So when I say it, I very often go right into the punchline. Someday when I was doing this comedy of Wheelands, I waited and by God, they got it. it takes a little mm. because they're absorbing it. Remember, they're laughing, at least when I do it, thank God, through the beginning of your setup. I try to ride the laughter, but if you wait too long, Mm. the people that aren't laughing, because there are always, you think, oh, everybody's laughing. No, they're not. There's some that aren't. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that I don't think other comedians realize is, because I've heard it all the time, well, it was a bad audience. Your job is to make them laugh. Mm. You were there uh, when we did that comedy gig, Mm. but an awful lot of comedians aren't. I always go to the beginning of every comedy show. I go to the beginning of every comedy show because I want to see what's making those people laugh. Mm -hmm. And if they're super conservative, I don't really change that much. Mm -hmm. But I sort of get a sense. Mm -hmm. It's the feeling of the room, isn't it? You just absorb the feeling. Okay, right, this is what's happened earlier in the the gig. Uh And then you go, okay, can I play with this? Can I use this? Can I... Can I just acknowledge this? Can mm-hmm. I? Can it be a button for later on if I need to? That sort of thing. Yeah, I like you to acknowledge it. You also know. You'll know what some of the people who some of the people mm, are exactly names. Like like when I was doing the Wheeland comedy, there was a couple that had been married for sixteen years. They had met when they were sixteen, so they were like in their thirties. Mm. And I knew about that, so that I could make jokes about relationships and then go to them and say, "You know what I'm talking mm. about," or "Doesn't apply to you," or. Yeah, Mm-mm. you know, this kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Because I had listened, because I knew. I don't change it that much. Mm. So you can add in a little sides here just to keep it ticking over, isn't it? That's what and it is. Just keeping yourself in the moment. Mm. Because that's the whole thing, being in the moment. And I have discovered in the last five years that jokes that were just okay really go over now. And the reason they do is because... This is the one thing Logan Murray says that I think is right, but it's not teaching anything. The longer you do it, the better you get at doing it. And what he means is, the longer you do it, the more it sounds like conversation. And my favorite anecdote with that is, I was doing comedy. What was the kid's last name? His first name is Brendan. And I was doing comedy. We were in... Uh, the San Francisco International Comedy Competition. I beat him. <laughs> well, I beat him because he was just beginning. And, yeah. and he really, he wasn't even in the finals. He didn't get anywhere. Mm. This is two or three years later. He really worked on himself, mm. and he was really funny. Mm. And he perfected this 
thing where he's doing memorized material, but it sounds like he's just chatting to you. So I brought my darling friend Alan, who is a psychiatrist, who is interested in doing comedy. He likes to tell funny stories about what these patients do because it's outrageous what they do. I'm bringing him to this club, and it's called Melt. That was the name of the club, Melt. And it was uh, run by a girl from... Uh, there's an island, uh, of course, British Isles is an island, but it's, it's not Cornwall, but it's something like that. Mm. It's an island. Isle of Wight. Yes. Ah, great. Yeah. The, the guy that was running it was a guy from Brighton. So Brendan gets up to do his comedy, and he's got it down. Mm. I mean, I very rarely see anyone that improves that much mm. in that short of time, but he really just had it nailed. And he gets up, and he's doing comedy, and my friend Alan is answering him. You know, no, leave him alone. He's doing comedy because it's, it's memorized. I, it's word for word. I could probably, and my friend Alan is, is answering him. And he's carrying it off really well. He's nodding and going on. And then Alan cannot bear it anymore. And he get, remember, he's a psychiatrist and he's used to being in charge. He gets up and takes the microphone from Brendan and tells him what he thinks about what Brendan is saying. And they threw him out of the club. Oh, no. And my friend Alan said, you know, what did I do? Because mm. he didn't get that this guy wasn't talking to him. He was doing a memorized mm. set, and he just didn't get it. It was so good that oh, he just so was like, felt, it was talking to him personally. That's amazing. Yeah, that's, that's what he does. He's that's discussing this with me. That's what and, and this guy's a psychiatrist, so mm. he can detect anything that's yeah. false. Amazing. Answering it back. Brendan was really very nice, but Alan was thrown out of the club and told him, can't come back. <laughs> and and um, he still remembers it. Because he still wants to be a stand-up comedian, mm. and he's, uh, I think he can do it. I think anyone can. Uh, do you know Chris Kent? Yes, I do. Of course you do. I gig with him. I've, I started when he was starting in Cork uh, years ago, but then I didn't continue. When he was starting, was he as funny as he is now? Uh, no. Because he's, no. no. Because, well, he's got the same problem I have, but he solved it faster. Yeah. I'm a storyteller. I'm not yeah. a comedian. I am a comedian. But my stories are funny, but... Chris has got the stories down. He's, he's absolutely perfect. Alan is a storyteller. I think he can get, because his stories are about his patients, mm. I think he can get it right. I tried my stories. They were probably like what Chris's were in the beginning. But instead of sticking to those stories, I changed the routine. I do set a punch. I do an old-fashioned kind of comedy. Well, you heard it. Mm. I do an old. Fa- were you there? You were yes, there. Yes, I was there. So yeah, yeah, it was great. It was great, really enjoyed. I do an, an an old fashioned kind of comedy. I do set up punch. Yeah. Set up punch. Mm. That's what I do. And the difference between the way I do it and the way somebody like um, who's the guy that says I get no respect, Rodney. Dindrick, oh yes, yeah, great. Those, the Jewish comedians. They they they'll skip from topic to topic. Mm. You saw what I do. I have mm. sections. Mm. I talk about women, mm. and and I also have sections that follow. I talk about women, then I talk about tattoos. And I've been forgetting the one about our, our council, but they're in sections. Because you have five minutes, you can only do one section. You have ten minutes, you can do... But that comes with doing it. I can never get over these people that don't have to be timed. I have to do ten minutes? All right, they get up there, they do ten minutes, and they sit down. Not me. I have to do ten. I don't know when ten minutes is. You go like mm-hmm. this, and I'll say, mm, already? Yeah. Or... Not yet, yeah. <laughs> depending on the audience, depending on the audience. That's how it happens. So more questions. So what do you, I mean, I'm looking around your, your, your flat here. You're, you're, you're very creative. You're a journalist. I mean, you're doing everything. You, you obviously put, you have a piano in the corner. You, you got all your grades and everything. Not well. 
<laughs> I'm learning to play, I'm learning to play piano as well at the moment. Do you, is it just like so? What do you do? What do you? What, okay, what is it that th- your go to then, Lynn? When you I write, you write straight away. Uh, but no, but I don't write comedy. Mm. Email has destroyed me. Oh. I write, and I also am my own agent. So I work. For example, as soon as you leave, before I go out for dinner, if I can, I have to confirm my Germany gigs to make sure that I am picked up at the airport. Mm and that I have a place to stay. I have to confirm my January gigs because they are in Southeast Asia. So I want to make sure I am picked up at the airport and that my dates are exactly right. And then I have to work on getting lodging for the Amsterdam one. Is it just one night? What gig are you doing in Amsterdam? Um, The one on the 13th is in Bonn. In April, I'm doing Mezrab and... uh, and then I'm doing Nutty Anita, I think mm. I think a week later. Mm. So I'm coming back and forth. Mm. One of the hardest things for me to get used to, because I'm from America, is that you can do these gigs in one day and just come back. Mm. It's it's a flight. Yeah. And as long as the flight doesn't get completely messed up and you don't run into, which I'm worried about because I'm in the middle of winter in Germany. Mm. But if everything goes as, as planned, I come home from Bonn in the morning and go to Bracknell Comedy that night. And then the next day, I go to Birmingham. What's the hardest thing you find about uh, about comedy? Like, what is the thing? Do you find anything particularly irksome to you? What do you mean the hardest? Like, well, the, the most difficult thing that you find with comedy? Getting new material that works. Right. Because you have to try it out. Hmm. And you have to... I don't like failing. You have to fail to make it work. Hmm. And um, I do David Hardcastle's uh, Monday Night. I do Tiff Stevenson if I can ever find a time. When I do Top Secret, I don't do new material. It's a new material night, but I don't do new material. Because he pays me, and, and if I'm getting paid, mm. I want to earn it. You want to give him the best show you can, right? Do you have, You've got a great voice. Do you do um, voiceovers as well, or anything like that? No, I've tried, but I haven't been able to get it. You don't have the, the, the glass walls I do, and, and you don't realize it. You're the right age, and you're the right color. Men have an easier time when they're older than women. I am a completely invisible entity. I can send out 35 emails, and the minute they see 85, they're done. But my shtick is about being 85. All they have to do is just, I send a a link, it's I'm 85. I start everything with my age. I'm invisible. They don't bother answering. I go on that uh, Facebook comedy thing, Mm -hmm. and I've sent out several and those people would have been fucking lucky to get me because they were the the really low low level gigs. And they got people that weren't as funny, and I would take the same amount of pay. Because I mean I'll do something for twenty or thirty, it doesn't bother me. My transportation is free. Okay, <laughs> and it's, it's in the city. So so it's very difficult with uh, that attitude towards your age. I mean it is but you you, you can show, so you think that would rely on your clip and your, your experience. No, 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 because the, they your see the clips. clip and they don't see the chemistry. Mm. The truth is, I'm not as funny as my audience reaction. I'm just not. The The idea that I'm going to get up there and I'm going to talk about teabagging is absolutely just throws them. <laughs> I've never done it. I would never do it. It makes me ill. But I know about it. I say that word and they say, oh, and to them, you laughed. So funny. I'm just talking about it. The difference in terminology, I'm not, it's really, it's like a Webster's Dictionary. I'm discussing. I am, I'm not discussing the act. I don't even know what, I do know what it is. But I mean, I, 
It's the contrast, isn't it's, it? It's, it's coming out of, so that my jokes, which they don't see hmm. when they watch a tape, they don't see that chemistry. Hmm. If you ever see me, it happened at Paul's, Paul's gig, thank God. Hmm. I was so afraid it wouldn't. And it only did because Quan got up first and because he was even more out of the box than I am. Hmm. You know, he doesn't talk English very well. He's a, yeah, and he's gay, and, mm. and that was a very straight crowd. Mm. It was very straight, and he's flamboyantly gay, mm. and he's funny. I think he's funny. Mm, yes, that's why I was a success because mm. he had them laughing at outrageous things when outrageous me got up there. That's why I was such a success. Yeah, but ordinarily. It's audiences like Top Secret and Angel. I just can't do anything wrong there. I keep thinking, no, this time it won't make it. It always does. And it's young people hearing their grandmother say words they never thought she knew. That's yeah. all. And that isn't how I should be judged. Simon Cowell, I was in Britain's Got Talent, and Simon Cowell did not like me. Hmm. And Simon Cowell was right. <laughs> Sorry, he was right. They gave me two minutes. I did... Two minutes of, you could anticipate the punchline on every setup. It was about being old. It was about being forgetful. It was about being, it was cliched. I didn't have time to build up to something unusual. Mm -hmm. I wanted to hit them with funny stuff. It was funny. Mm. The audience loved it. David Williams loved it. Those two women, cute little women, they they loved it. Oh, he was smart enough to see. It's just cliched. There was nothing new. He was right. If you don't judge me, um, have you ever done comedy in the dark? No. That's where they can't see you. And that's the acid test for me. My comedy has to be as funny as yours, as Paul's, as as Quan. That funny, not because I'm old. The quality of the material that I am giving you hmm. has to be that funny. However, the truth is that as a comedian... It's your persona as well. So that's part of what's funny about me. You see, I find that sometimes that you, you know, you're, we're talking about how they people perceive you, and you don't often have any control over what they feel about you as soon as they see you. My friend Brett Lilligard talks about that. He always. Um, I used to do this, but then they stopped me and said, don't do it. Uh, I always say something nice about the comedians that went on before me. But then they stopped me, somebody who I thought knew their business here, and they said, we don't do that here, so I don't do it anymore. But you've got to say something that endears you to the audience. Who was it? Oh, Connor. Mm. Mm, we won't say his last name. So Connor Drum, he's been on this podcast already. Yeah. Oh, he's already gone. Yeah. He doesn't endear you. It's harder for him to get a laugh because mm. he's an arrogant young man. His material was excellent. His mm. material was absolutely marvelous. Mm. And I wrote him, and I mean, I pretty much got a thing that says, thank you, I'm glad you realized. <laughs> right. And there was absolutely nothing about the fact that I am as good as he is yeah. because I am as good as mm. he is. I wasn't as good as the one before, and that goes right back to what we're talking about. His name mm. is Robbie. Bonham? Yes. Right. And the reason that man was funnier than both of us mm. is because of his Irishness. It's in that yeah, blog. I don't much. know whether John might have cut it out, but it's in that blog. He is so funny because he's so 
Irish. Joan Rivers, despite the fact that she probably would be rolling in her grave if she was, is exceptionally Jewish. Mm-hmm. There's a joke she does. You remember her husband's name is Edgar, and he committed suicide. And my favorite, this so Jewish, she says, she goes to a restaurant. She says, if Edgar were alive today and saw these prices, he'd kill himself again. <laughs> That's Jewish. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a guy named Ethan Hershenfeld or something mm-hmm. who was absolutely marvelous, but he comes to Glasgow and does Jewish jokes, and he doesn't understand why they don't go. And one of them is, in a Jewish household, you want your kid to be a doctor, a lawyer, or a violinist. That that's what you want, and it's so ingrained in all of us, we don't have to explain it. Mm-hmm. And if you've got a daughter, you want her to marry a doctor, and you want her to get married. Mm-hmm. She's not supposed to earn a living. So he gets up there, Ethan, and he says, so I got a job as a taxi driver. How could I tell my mother? That is unbelievably funny to a Jewish mm-hmm. audience, mm-hmm. not to somebody in Glasgow. They mm-hmm. think, well, that's great. <laughs> Yeah. Most of ours are just sitting on the street with a with a cup and a dog. Yeah, yeah. he got a taxi. That's fine. Yeah. He's making money. Got a car, man. <laughs> so yeah, he's ready for it. Yeah. yeah. You know, they're all saying, yeah. And he's, and everybody's waiting, and nobody's going to laugh. Nobody's going to laugh at all. And I don't want to hurt his feelings, but I wish to hell he would get some of that. Because it's absolutely ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. To the people in Glasgow, being a taxi driver is a great thing. Mm-hmm. And he said, so how can I tell my mother, which is so funny in a Jewish audience. Mm. Robbie's Irish humor is funny to everyone, and I can't explain what it is. I wrote about it in the blog. I have a friend whose name is Carla Clay. She's black. This is a joke, and it's not a joke at all. But when she says it, it's the funniest thing I've ever heard. She's black, and she's really black. I mean, she looks like she just came out of the middle of Africa. And she just, she says, I work at the Lost and Found at San Francisco Airport. And people, she said, are so stupid. This woman came up to me. I stand under a sign that says lost and found. And this woman came up to me and said, is this the lost and found? Well, it's her. Mm. That brings down the house. That's really not that funny. And my friend Andre, Andre the Wonder Woman, who is the funniest black woman in the world, Mm. she says... And this is also, you just laugh, you just can't stop, and it's not that funny. Mm. She said, when you give comedy to white, she's black, she says, when you give comedy to white people, they just don't laugh. They don't like it. If you do comedy for black people and they don't like it, they follow you out to the parking lot. I'm telling you, that brings down the house, and it's just that. Mm. It's the way way she says it. Mm. It's the way she... Rolls and she doesn't even roll her eyes. Carla rolls her eyes. Carla mm. gives you the black look. Mm. But Andre doesn't even do that. Mm. And it's it just brings down the house. And it's really not that funny at all. Mm. I can do Jewish things like that mm. to a Jewish audience, but mm. my audiences are not Jewish. Mm. One of my favorite things that I can do, although I think this is also Irish. You come to a Jewish woman's home at any time of the day or night. You walk up to the front door, she answers the door, and she says to you, have you eaten? Mm-hmm. And everybody, mm-hmm. yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. The Irish mammy does the same thing. Mm-hmm. Have you eaten? Mm-hmm. Then she turns to whoever else is in the house and says, I don't have a thing in the house. 
Then she goes to the refrigerator and opens up, and that's got enough food to feed the Armenian army. She feeds you a dinner that is so big, nobody can finish it, including the 10 extra guests. As you haul the food back out, she looks at whoever's in the house, and she says, no one ate a thing. And that is, but it works with an, an Irish audience, too. That is Jewish. That's yeah. it. And you'd say that to somebody, say, from Sweden or English. Mm-hmm. You're damn lucky if you get a cup of tea from yeah. somebody from England. Mm-hmm. You come into a Jewish... And, and, I mean, this can be stay for dinner, but it's one in the afternoon. Well, stay. Yeah, yeah. And they observe you, too. Yeah. I eat dinner at this German woman's home where she married an Italian. Italians are the same. And he cooks. And we'll sit there and be eating and he'll have a plate that nobody's serving platter that nobody's done much with. And he'll just sort of push it to the middle of the table so you go, we haven't eaten that. <laughs> Counting what you're eating, yeah, yeah, that's you're it. Supposed to, Did you notice that? That's there too. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. Doesn't say a word. And with me there, he doesn't understand what I'm saying anyway because he can only speak German and, and, and Italian. He said he's from Sardinia. But he'll do that. He'll just push the plate. You don't want seconds. He won't say anything. He'll just push it there. Yeah. Mm. Because food is very important to every minority. Mm. Uh, Irish people went through that terrible famine. Mm. Jews were starved. That's why it's mm. food is... Uh, Italians are the same way. It's, food is really important to them. Mm. You've been performing for 15 years, right? And It's coming on 16. 16 years, right, okay. Not yet, but it will be. What was the date? So April of this year, I will have finished six, 15 years, and I'll be on to my 16th. Well, you write about your, your life as it is now. And you find that you know, like, I was at one meeting. Sorry, sorry, excuse me. Sorry, with your, with your, because you talk about your books and because uh, you're, you're talking about being eighty-five. Yeah. So comedy and, and your all your writing is very cathartic. Cathartic, I guess, for you is it? I think it must be. I've always been a humorist. Mm. Um, when I look back on my life, I realize I probably always wanted to perform. Uh, I've had three television shows. I was on CBS with a children's show called The Little Playhouse, which was awful. I've never been paid for my television shows. Right. It was public service. I did that for a year and a half, two years, and then I got married uh, again. So <laughs> that, that stopped. And then when I was in Pacifica, I'm trying to think, when was 9-11? 2001? 2001, that's right. Okay, from 2001 to 2006. I've been here four years, so 2014, 2013 years. I had two TV programs on Pacifica's community television Mm. thing. One was What's Hot Between the Covers, Mm. which is a book review program. I'll never get a title as good as that. What's Hot Between the Covers. And people say to me, so, what's hot between the sheets? I said, no, it's not that kind of a book. (laughs) It's a book review program. And I interviewed people in the arts. And I had some really memorable stuff happen there. Because if I read a book, I would try to do an offshoot of it. And there's a book by Wally Lamb called This Much I Know is True about, they're not identical, they're fraternal twins and their connection with each other. So I want to do a program about it and the studio is, oh, it's 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 not as big as this room. So, you know, I'm not realizing that when I have, so I called up a bunch of, there's an organization, Mothers with Twins. So I called up and I said, can I have two or three mothers with the twins? Mm-hmm. I'm not realizing, I'm not just getting three mothers, but I'm getting two, four, six Six more children. Mm. So that's six, seven, eight, nine. That's nine people in that tiny little studio. I really just thought it was terrible. They were all over the place. And yeah. I did a program 
about the ESP that twins have. They do. Oh, yeah. They're fraternal twins, but boy, they know. They know. They they sense each other. I've got two twin cousins, Ah. and one of them broke his leg. And I thought he was out, he broke his leg somewhere. And the other one started crying in class. He wasn't there with him. He was like out doing something with a hole and broke his leg. He was like start crying in class. You know, so I can, so, so How old? They were about maybe in their, I think maybe 11 or 12. Like, so that age. He knew something had happened. Yeah, then he said something had happened to his, uh, his brother. It's mad. Yeah, oh, no, yeah they it's do. Very, they very do. strong connection. It's gorgeous. And mm. the fraternal twins are not identical? Are uh, they, they are identical twins. Identical twins. Yeah. It's, the identical twins, it's scary. Mm. Yeah. Identical twins, you drop something in, in the kitchen here yeah. and three miles away he'll flinch. Yeah, they they are so connected. But you must see also, I am not a a spiritual person. Uh, I'm an atheist. But you must see also the connection we have with one another. I will innumerable times, I will be writing an email to someone as they are writing an email to me. So I'll send it, and then another thing will come back. And say, How did that happen? We are connected as human beings. And we're also, do you have pets? Yes, I've got uh, two dogs. What kind? I've got a husky and I've got a, a Labrador. I was just with a Labrador. Mm. Borador, which oh, is right. a border collie mm. and a Labrador. Except that they're nuts. This dog mm. is so Labrador. Mm. And he's nine months old. Yeah, boy, they have mm. a lot of energy. And this dog is is desperately in love with me. He's oh, yeah. desperately in love with me. See, my little dog, this dog could knock me over. He's mm. as big as I am. And the, his companion, you have to have two dogs. So do you live where you can have dogs? Uh, yeah, I live with my wife. Children? Uh, i got uh, two kids. I believe in dogs for children. I think it's a mm. terrible mistake not to have them. Mm. Responsible uh, for something else. And, you know, no, not because of that. Because a little kid needs to have someone to talk to that doesn't talk back. That's true, I guess. And you... Maybe you can talk to a cat. It's yeah. not quite the same. My Michael was wonderful, oh. but you maybe can talk to a cat. You, with a dog, it looks like they know what you're saying. Yeah, they're kid, listening intently, yeah. yeah. A kid needs to have something they can talk to. Your dog was called Michael. No, my cat was Michael. Your cat my was dog called... was David. <laughs> and those dogs, those dogs were Amy, Dorothy, and Donald. Right, yeah. And now I see why, uh, yeah, and then I always had, I never got a dog that was... Too big to wash in the sink. That's a good idea. Well, That's I guess it was just me. Idea. I didn't have... That's great. I, I, I prefer that, to be fair. Just pick them up and take oh them God, where you need oh, to yeah, go. You have to, you, you have to bathe them in a, mm. a Labrador and a Husky. That's big dogs. Yeah, that's right. I, I have to, like, but you have a backyard. Uh, you've got a small garden. We just have to take them to the field and let them run around. Oh, know? yeah. It, but the Do you live garden. in London? No, I, I live in outside about 25 miles outside. Ah, that's, well, yeah, that would be the only way. Yeah, I, I don't think you could have a big dog in, in London. It's wrong all. to coop them up. That's it. I've had, I think, over 30 dogs altogether wow. in my life. Well, sure. Yeah. I started, my first dog was David when I was 36. Mm. I got him because I was I was sent home to die from the hospital. I was uh, terminally ill. And they sent me home to die. And I love this story. They sent me home to die. And I, my mother called me because she never believed I was really sick, my mother. I had a Jewish mother who was, what, what is it I say? My, I was born the day that Hitler came into power, which explains my mother. I've been sick for six months. I've been hospitalized. And I came home. They didn't dismiss me. And uh, my mother, however, did not believe I was sick. Mm-hmm. So she uh, called me and she said, you know why you were gone? Guilt. Jewish mothers can do guilt. Mm-hmm. She said, you know why you were gone? I was almost dead. Uh, she said, why you were gone? No one did my garden. 
Mm-hmm. So I am shit at gardens, but I mm-hmm. but I was her maid. I will never understand why my mother decided to make me Cinderella. Mm. Immensely wealthy woman. She could have hired someone. But anyway, mm. I was the one that did the dishes. I was the one that did all that. So I got in the car. Now, this is, this is directly after this diagnosis. I weighed, I don't know what you know anything about pounds. Yep. People don't, 55 pounds. Ooh. Oh, and I thought I was fat. So I, I, I went out to do her garden, which is the equivalent of going from here to Brighton. I drove over there. I did her garden. She, she's Jewish mother. Sent me home with food. Mm-hmm. I came home. And I pulled up behind a cement mixer. And I was driving a Valiant. And I, and I now realize what happened. I didn't at the time. I was really sick. Mm. So I pulled up behind the cement mixer. And I didn't push down hard enough on the brake. Yeah. So I coasted into the cement mixer. And I remember thinking, thank God it's over. Because that sickness was... It was I was... It was not good. I did not feel well. Mm. And I thought, thank God it's over. And I remember I was so relieved. Then I'm lying there, pushed into the cement mixer. My head hit the steering wheel. I'm lying like this, and I'm thinking, I don't feel very dead. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) What's going on here? Dead like this? So I thought, well, you know, maybe I can open up the car door and see what's in. I did. I got out of the car... And there was absolutely nothing wrong with me. If it hadn't been that someone told me I was going to die, I, I would have just sat up. Mm. It was just never like that. But because I thought I was going to die, I stayed there, you know, wait, oh, this is it. Mm. So when I got out of the car, I looked at the car, and, and in those days, when I was 36, that would have been in the very early 70s, 73, as a matter of fact. They were made of tin. Mm. And, and so when I hit the cement mixer, it was not a very hard hit mm. at all. Mm. The cement mixer never even knew I hit him. But the front of the car was total. And I had a, a bloody nose. That was all I had because the impact. And I thought to myself, and this is not a joke. This is really what I said. I said, well, you may not be much, but you're better than anything General Motors can make. <laughs> Got in my car with its smashed front and decided to make myself well. Uh, that was when I was 36. It took me 10 years. What was wrong with you? I think I had a nervous breakdown. I think it was this. They think it was, what did they think was wrong with me? Just a severe case of osteoporosis and something was wrong with my intestines Mm -hmm. and they couldn't figure out what it was. What it was, was here. But I didn't know that at the time. I I just thought, no, I'm going to get well because they're wrong. I I believe, and all of you people who are already dead can tell me if I'm right, you know when you're that close to death. Mm. Because, I mean, they told me you, you won't last a week. That was when I was 36, I'm 85. All right, yeah. so I decided uh, to get exercise, and I am not athletic in any way, which is another thing that's uh, interesting about me. Mm. I was not a successful child. Uh, you know, kids play tag, they always got me. Yeah. And I always would trip and fall. I had scabs on my knees, mm. all the, and I would do things like everybody else would be playing, and I would be digging to get to China. Right, right. Very industrious. I'm going to get there. I'm going to come in for lunch. And I can almost there. Were you the only child? No, but I was, for eight years I was. No, I does. Yeah. I'm going to get to China. Damn it. Leave me alone. I'm almost there. Just imagine. Yeah. On a mission. Yeah. And I was thinking, gee, I better make this hole a little bigger because I want to go down there. (laughs) Yeah. No, it was that kind of thing. I was an absolute. Sort of like a dreamer. Sort of like a way with it. Completely, completely. Uh, while they were all playing tag, was I'm not a successful child. You ride bicycles 
as soon as we get two wheelers, I couldn't do it. Mm. If you've never heard, well, I didn't do that comedy there, but I do comedy about it. It's simply, I can't swim. My mother sent me to camp, oh God, for years, and I just can't swim because I'm terrified. You can't graduate high school unless you can swim. I figured out how to get out of it. I do a story. That's one of the stories I tried for comedy, and it didn't work. I do a story. I, I tricked the teacher. I told the teacher I was hemorrhaging. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think the teacher probably had menstrual problems. Mm-hmm. So this is like a month and a half, and she, two months, and she said, still? Yeah. There's nothing wrong with me. And I ended up playing volleyball with a bunch of pregnant teenagers. Yeah, I didn't have to. Yeah. I got out of uh, swimming. I can't swim. There's a progression of tests. And I think test six is you tread water. I was okay with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you jump in. At that point, the swimming lessons continued for everyone else. And I stood and looked down at the mm-hmm. water. I would not. Mm-hmm. I'm very, very. And and, um, and kids like to do wild adventuresome things. Uh, when I was young, we didn't have pot, <laughs> but we had beer, yeah. and we I never touched it. Cool. No way. I smoked. Remember, you had to be in in America, I think you had to be 21, uh, and this is, I'm talking about 14, 15, 16. Everybody drank, mm. not me. I wouldn't. You don't. Yeah. Everybody had sex, not me. Mm. You didn't. That was I tell a joke about that. Yeah. On the third date, you let them kiss you. Now on the third date, you let them fuck you. But it's a totally <laughs> different thing there. Yeah. And then you ask them your name, their name. You know, you don't know who the hell they are. Right. That wasn't the way it was. Uh, I was very, very proper. But as I look back, I loved. We used to do. I call them entertainments. It's very much like musical. Mm. You got up and you. I used to do it in our backyard. I would. Uh, take my mother's old clothes and I would dress up and, you know, and my cousin and I, we would sell lemonade and sell lemonade and then we would sing songs, you know, you're a grand old flag, you know, like that. Yeah. get all the neighbors to come and I would perform with my cousin Jessica yeah. and uh, who is dead now, she's gone. Then when I went to college, we did entertainments. Mm. I was a little teapot, I yeah. had a big teapot, I was teapot short and stout. Mm. There used to be an ad for your maiden form, maiden form bra, called I Wish I Was. I dreamed I was a pirate in my maiden form bra. And I forget what I did, but I did. I dreamed I was in my maiden form. And I did that. Uh, So I was always in the entertainments, and I wrote them. In every single thing I've ever done, I always wrote it. So I was not like I was in a play, Mm. although I was in a play, too. I was my dentist lover. And uh, first act... First scene, he kissed me, and then uh, he locked me in the closet. At the end of the third act, they, they exposed him, mm. and I emerged. All my kids, I taught kindergarten, I taught uh, seven-year-olds. Mm. They all came to watch me. Oh, yeah? <laughs> and they went, there's Miss Miller. And then, where'd she go? <laughs> and then at the end of the third act, they're all sitting here she is again. Oh! <laughs> and then the next day in school, we saw you. You were wonderful. Oh, yeah, that's great. Oh, that's <laughs> so, yeah, great. Shoved me in the thing. Yeah. I think what happened is, I don't think he shoved me in. I think he kissed me, uh-huh. and then someone else shoved me in, because I think I kissed him at the end, too. My dentist. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. who it was. But I, I love things like that. I love doing things like that. Uh, but I never thought of myself as a professional. Mm. I thought of myself as a writer. Mm. Because... Um, I just always wrote. Yeah. And when I was 10, 
I won a prize. Yeah. I wrote a poem called The Lamplighter. Oh, okay. Oh, no, no. no. Not, not that one. No, okay. Let's see. I think I'm... Oh, great. Oh, okay. no. Nobody <laughs> ever saw it. It was, it right. was trash. Okay. Um, ten. I got a silver sure. dollar. And from then on, I knew my destiny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ten. I knew my destiny. Right there, straight away. And one of the things I did, always writing, when I finally got well, I got a job in Oklahoma City. In Oklahoma City, the, it's, it's a pit. The stocks, stockyards are in the middle of the city, and it's very windy. Hmm. So if you live anywhere in Oklahoma City, and it's a big city, you open your windows, it smells like cow shit. <laughs> so <laughs> I it's thinking, like West Cork, where I'm from. Where I'm oh, like oh, it's awful. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So I was thinking, you know, this is, I'm very negative here. <laughs> okay, I don't yeah. like it. Yeah. Other people say, well, you don't like it, you change jobs. But no, that's not what happened to me. Hmm. I happened to be reading John Steinbeck's Travels with Charlie. Mm -hmm. That's about John Steinbeck. I'm not. But, of course, I think I'm just as good as he is. You have to realize. Hmm. I think I'm even better than Picasso because you can recognize what I do. You know, I mean, yeah. it's, uh, it's got this hubris. And so. so I'm reading Travels with Charlie, and he uh, got a travel trailer. Well, he got a motorhome and a poodle, Charlie and traveled around the country and wrote this really interesting book. And I thought, I'm sitting in Oklahoma City breathing cow shit, and I'm thinking, yeah, I could do that. I had two dogs, one cat. In fact, I think I had two. I, I definitely had one cat. Because Michael had died, so I had two cats. I had one cat. No, as a matter of fact, I had two because I got Sarah. So, all right, so uh, two cats, <laughs> two dogs. I could do it. But because I didn't have any money, I've never had any money. I have never. That's something else. Uh, you're going to see a lot of these comics that are doing very well. They seem to be doing well because they've got a lot of money. And they pay for promotion. You don't need, it takes you longer, but it doesn't. So, anyway, so I didn't have very much money. So I couldn't afford a motorhome. But I got a thing called a fifth wheel. They transport horses in it. It sits in the bed of a truck, and I've seen them in Ireland. It sits in the bed of the truck because they transport horses. Hmm. There's a little part that sits in the bed of the truck, and then the big part, the 24-foot part, is this. Mm. And horses are usually in it, mm. but they also make them travel travel homes. Yeah. So I got one of those, and I got a GMC truck, and I had the two dogs and the two cats. Mm. And when we, we did the southwest United States, and when I would drive down the highway... I was so little, you couldn't see me. Yeah. I was, because it's yeah. a GMC truck. It's huge. Yeah, big, yeah, big trucks. Yeah, you can't see me. I was looking through the steering wheel at that. Yeah. And all they could see was this one cat looking out the window. It was Eileen looking out the window. Yeah. And they'd go, look at that. <laughs> 24 feet of trailer. But I, but my thinking was, yeah, I can do that. Yeah. He's a man. He's only got one dog. I've got hmm. two. Yeah. And I talked Reader's Digest into saying... He would read what I wrote. He never said he would publish. Hmm. And I went all over the Southwest, and I and I wrote in my little typewriter on my hmm. my travel trailer. So I did. So I always thought of myself as a, as a, as a writer. Hmm. That's what I've always thought of myself as. Have you, have you written sitcoms as well? Have you? No, tried I'm not that, that kind of writer. Right. I write stories and stories. narrative and what you what you I had a column. Right. I had a column. Well, while I was sick, I was writing columns, but not regularly, uh, for the Jewish News and a, and a magazine called the Impresario Magazine and uh, Toledo Blade and the Toledo Blade. 
I was doing big articles for the Toledo Blade. And then in Oklahoma City, the job I got was writing. When I got to California, when I got to California, I moved to Pacifica and, and a man named Chris Hunter had just gotten a job with the Pacifica. Pacifica's like a Brighton. Mm. It's got its own newspaper, but it's really a suburb. Brighton would kill me if I said they were a suburb of London. Pacifica's really a suburb of San Francisco. Mm. But it's got its own newspaper. And this kid was, was uh, Chris, he's not a kid anymore. He's in his 60s. He was promoted to feature editor. So he came, at that, at that time I was writing novels, uh, and he came to do an interview about this woman that's churning out novels that nobody's reading. And uh, and we really connected. And then he became the editor, and he called me up and said, I want to do something to sparkle up the paper. Would you like a column? Mm. And so I had a column in the Pacifica Tribune for, oh, maybe five, six years. Mm. And then I started doing it just for holidays. So I have a lot of stories about Thanksgiving and Christmas and the Jewish holidays and Easter and stuff like that. And my columns were always, they always had a funny thing at the end. And then I put those into a book. When I did Starving Hearts, that was the first novel I got published, and I published it. I got somebody to publish it, but he wanted me to sign a contract that gave him all the rights for 10 years. I was 68. Mm. I thought, no, by 10 years I'll be dead. I don't want that. Mm. 78. That was seven years ago. So I published it myself, and I thought no one would read it. It had been refused by every major publisher in the United States and here for about two, three years. I sent it out. And my friend from Pensacola, I sent her a galley copy. She read it, and she said, you know, this is good. So she said, how would you like to do a book tour? I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, you come to Pensacola, and then I've got relatives in New Orleans, and I've got relatives in Louisiana, uh, South Carolina, wherever the hell it is. Mm. She said, I'll drive you around. Mm. I said, okay, I'll pay for the gas. We stayed with her relatives, and I did a book tour. Right. Starving Hearts, <clears throat> self-published, before people were self-publishing, paid for every other book I published. I, mm. I've made a fortune on that. So, because that was what I thought I would always do, is just mm. write. What was the favorite piece of writing you've ever done? What was the thing you thought, oh, that, I can't write anything better than that? I don't, I don't want to make a... I love, I love The Late Bloomer. You can get that online, mm. uh, on Amazon, and I love it. But I have, I have three others that are not published, and I'm hoping uh, to get them published before I die. But I've got to reread them to see if they're still pertinent. One is called marigolds. I don't know whether you know this, but if you plant marigolds in the garden, they keep the bugs away. Oh, I know that. So the, the, the whole thing is a joke, this one. Right. So the grand, she's a single, single mom, hmm. uh, the mother, and she's very much patterned after my grandma. And she says, I named you marigold to keep the bugs away. Hmm. And Marigold says she thinks that her father was a, a sailor because her he left his mother for distant shores. He walked out on her is what he did. And she decides she wants to have a baby, but she doesn't want to get married because her mother never did. And she doesn't want to... I asked her, does she want to... I knew about IVF then. I said she wanted to... No, she wanted to have it just like her mama did. And what she does is she finds herself... And remember the Jewish thing, a doctor, a lawyer, a violinist. Mm. 
So this is all takes place in San Francisco. She, she, she goes to the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, which in itself is a joke because it's nothing. And she hears this violinist whose name is Stradivarius. Do you know what mm, Stradivarius yeah, is? Mm-hmm. A yeah. It's a, it's yeah, a yeah. kind of violin. Yeah. Stradi. Kind of expensive violin. Yeah, Stradi is his yeah. name. And she decides that he's the one. Yeah. And then I did something that was really very avant-garde. This was in... When was I writing this? This would have been in 1970-something because I had stopped writing the novels by 1980. And I had her take him, invite him to Tahoe and feed him marijuana brownies. You call it something else. Uh, yeah. No, you're right, brownies, same. Yeah, yeah but yeah. I, nobody was doing that then. Right. Yeah. She just baked marijuana in it. Space her. cakes, they call it sometimes as well. Yeah, yeah. That's right, yeah. Marijuana brownie. Because he is, is so high. Mm. And of course, I'm wrong. Because when you're high, you're not energetic. Mm. You're more laid back. Mm. But I've got them having sex all over everything. So, anyway, <laughs> so they finally have sex on the grand piano. And Marigold says, that made the baby. And that's yeah. it. But the thing I absolutely love is, is he passes out. And she puts him to sleep. Mm. And the next morning, he comes down for breakfast, and she's cleaning up all the different... Because I described what they were doing. They, they, they was, yeah. They're knocking over lamps. and it's, it's, uh, I'm very good at, at, at writing about chaos. I love yeah. doing it. You didn't hear this comedy, but I do several com- comic things like that. Mm-hmm. I've got one about cooking dinner mm. where I end up in the hospital. It's a, I'm very good at creating this terrible stuff. So I, uh, Anyway, so he comes down for breakfast, and, and he says... You know, I had the most amazing dreams last night. Mm. And she says it's the best line in the whole book. I'll bet you did. Yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that's it. And then she uh, she has the baby. And then uh, this is, sure, it was 1990. Because then she forms a group called Women of the 90s. Because they want to be independent. And they learn how to fix toilets and how mm. to service a car. And the line is... We finally learned what seven inches really is, <laughs> and what a male screw and a female screw is, and what seven inches really looks like. Mm. And then she has the baby, and eventually they get together. Mm. And I, 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 but that's one of my favorite yeah. books. And she goes to this conservator of music when she's pregnant, and she swears that the kid is singing. Mm. And then she takes her as a baby, and she the, the baby starts to cry. And the usher says, you have to leave, you're disturbing them. She says, can't you hear it singing? Mm. says, singing. singing. And eventually he finds them, they, finds, he, they meet, and she has the other baby. And what is, I think the other baby is a doctor. And she says, how do you right. know? She says, because I can feel it, it's toe, toe dancing. It's yeah. crazy, it's yeah. absolutely crazy. And I love that book. So that's the one I want to publish. When I was young, I had a really good friend uh, named Lois Oaken, who was just, she looked like Pocahontas. Mm. And she was just the sweetest. We, I don't think we have this kind anymore. We have two like this, but this one was particularly innocuous, mm. gentle little woman. Little, she's much shorter mm-hmm. than I, which is hard to believe. Was mm-hmm. As big as that wastebasket, which was mm. really little. And she had these big dark eyes. And she was absolutely the, the most innocuous, quiet. We used to call her Little Loyoka. Mm. And her son murdered her. Oh, no. So I wrote a book trying to figure out why any human being would want to murder this beautiful little person. 
just the most beautiful little person. And sadly, I don't have the article anymore, but there was an article in the paper. His name was David. And, and he murdered her with a butcher knife, with a, with a kitchen knife. And it's called Stilled Laughter. And that's another one. And the reason I know that one's good is because I wrote it. Mm-hmm. But as I reread it, I get to the point where he's about to murder her. Mm. I wrote it. And I'm sitting there saying, no, no. Yeah, and then yeah. I thought, you're invested. You stupid ass. All you have to do is just change it. You did it. And mm-hmm. said, no, don't. Yeah. Uh, because he's coming at her. And the little girl, because I uh, concentrated on the, the, the his sister seeing mm-hmm. it. And so that's the other one I want to publish. But I probably won't because it takes... A lot to sell a book, and I'm trying to sell a comedian. Yeah, is there anyone you look up to, uh, com- comedian-wise, you know, alive? I mean, but like you could Phyllis have Diller. Phyllis Diller. Phyllis Diller. She saw what oh. she needed to do, and she did it hmm. at a time when women. Uh, Joan Rivers, I do too, but Joan Rivers was mean. Hmm. She wasn't a nice person. Hmm. But Phyllis Diller, I don't know if she was nice or not, but boy, she made it happen. Yeah, Phyllis Diller. Um, but I look up to anybody. I believe that any human being, any human being, can do any dream they've got if they're willing to put in the work. And I always quote it's a William David Thoreau, who said, "Build your castles in the air. There they are. That's the dream. That's where I want to go. Mm. And then start making the steps to get you to it. And what really happens is you build the castle in the air." You get about here and you think, you know, I really don't like that castle. So you go over here, the castle's over there. And then you get, and then maybe you get almost there and you think, you know, that really stinks. I'm going to go over here. It's the journey. I've had, from the time I managed to get away from my parents and get away from Toledo, Ohio, from then on, I've had the best life. Absolutely the best. And I have not had money every April in America, taxes go in on April 15th. I would look at my poverty level in California. Now, this changed in all the places I've been. But in California, poverty level for a single person was 21000 a year. I was living on fourteen. I was living on fourteen, And to give you some kind of perspective, I am living on that same amount, 14000 a year. I don't even have that much. I have little. I think I'm... I think it's 12-something hmm. a year. Hmm. Oh, no, I'm doing fine. No tears for me. The In Pleasanton, California, which is adjacent to where I lived, poverty is 130,000. I was living on 14. Wow. Uh, and people say, yeah, I really know how to how to economize. I buy 30-day-old meat, and I buy, I don't care if I throw up. I live on six tablespoons of oats. I live really well. Mm. I take very good care of myself. I eat healthy, healthy food. I don't realize how picky I am mm. uh, until, like, last night, I went to a restaurant. There was nothing there. Because <laughs> I won't eat red meat. Mm. I won't eat pork. Uh, if I come to your house, I'll eat it, if you mm. put it in front of me. Because it's just preference. Mm. Uh, I, God, I won't eat liver. I can't stand mm. it. I won't eat anything that's salty or pickled. Mm. And I don't eat starchy things. Right. We just got rid of pasta. So there you have it. Yeah. Nothing. Wow. And I'm sitting and looking at this thing and think, oh my God. Yeah. Nothing on this menu except the tiramisu. I can do that. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, so I'm very picky about yeah, food. Very much. Ever since I got out of the hospital. Uh, and I'm also picky about um, health. Mm. I, I get eight hours sleep. 
and I walk. That's why I miss the dog. I yeah. really miss the dog. It's good. Uh, it's good to connect with, the, with those animals when you're out with them. It's just a, it's an event. There you can see the joy in them. Oh, don't can, you love it? A, don't I you? absolutely oh. love it. You, you go into the dog, it's pouring rain out, thunder and lightning, yeah. and you take the leash and say, yeah, yeah. let's oh, go. And you say, no, it. you really don't want to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we got it. And then you get outside and they say, mm. Let's go back in. Oh no, my my one's Oh, like, yours, yours like, are oh, big. But just, they, yeah, they just, I, I, I took because I, I was away for a couple of days there, and uh, I came back and the, the wife hadn't walked them as, as much as like, you know she could have done, and and then they came, I came back and, and I let them out in the field and they were like, I could see the joy in them. Oh. I was like, oh, it's brilliant. It just, it, you know, it just, it's, a, it's a, a, a I will never wonderful. forget. I always kept my dogs on a leash because I can't run that fast. But I went to a winery mm. and it was pretty much enclosed. And I let Donald, the little five-pound poodle, go off the leash. Never forget. No. So happy. Mm. Just ran with the little ears. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. And you, you, unless you have a dog, mm. you don't appreciate how gorgeous, how beautiful that is. Mm. And that's why I think I think it's very wrong that they don't allow dogs here. I understand that dogs bark. Mm. They allow a cat, but I'm not going to have a cat shitting in my bathroom. Yeah, I know. If I lived... On the main floor, I might have a cat because I like cats, but not like dogs. They're just not like dogs. No, not the same. And the big dogs are like human. Mm. I mean, Luca—that's the Borador. Mm-hmm. He would knock me over, but the love is just no. She's mine, mm. and the tail will go bam, bam, mm-hmm. bam, and I—you get the double whammy look. You know, yeah. because I'm hungry. Yeah. Oh, if you like, don't let me out, I'm going to pee right on your shoe. Yeah. Look at your soul. Yeah, yeah. Oh, That's they it. do. They mm. look at your soul. Mm. You're gigging all over the world. You've been to Edinburgh so many times. What's the name of the shows you've taken up there, apart from the one you told me? The, the Was it the, the Weapons of... Uh, weapons of Laugh Destruction. Laugh Destruction. And oh, is God, that the only so one many. you took? Was that the only one? I did three storytelling shows. Uh, three storytelling shows. Farewell to the Tooth Fairy. Yeah. Because remember how innocent I was, I believe in that. Farewell. An audience with Lynn Reeves Miller, because when you do an Edinburgh show, you want to get an A, you want to be in the A. Mm-hmm. And the other one was the other side of the mirror, I figured the hell with it. And it has a picture of a cat looking in a mirror and seeing a lion. Mm. The other side of the mirror. Mm. Those are storytelling shows. Mm. And then I started with the comedy. What did I call it? I forget what I called it. I always make up titles. Mm. But then I have cabarets. I did Aging is Amazing. Yeah. Approaching 80, that was six years ago, Approaching 80, which I now call 80, Mm. Uh, Approaching 80, Not Dead Yet, Mm. Get a Grip, Mm. I Love Men, and now I'm working on I've Got Plans, and I'm hoping to get arts funding for that. Oh, and then my my comedy shows, which is This Is Your Future, and I've taken that to Melbourne as well, all Mm. over the world, Mm. and then... um, the other comedy show is I Never Said I Was Nice. That's the one I'm working on, but I'm going to do with Angel. Right. So uh, one is you've got your problem promoting at the moment is I Never Said I Was Nice. I Never Said I Was Nice is the new one. That's the new one. That's the one and you're taking I'm for. interested in how I'm going to do it because I'm very taken with, I think, what was it called, Nanette? Nanette, yes. Yeah, with Hannah Gadsby. Hannah Gadsby, that's right. I watched that, and the first thing I said was, you have to have a hell of a big following to do that kind of show and get a response with something that is not funny. Mm. Because none of it is funny. Little, little quips. Mm. But, I mean, you've heard me do comedy. I want you to do that. And at the end, what she doesn't get is she's not talking just about lesbians. 
She's talking about every marginalized person. Every marginalized person. If you're Irish and you come to America, they think you're going to be a policeman. If you're Polish, they think you're going to be stupid. They, every marginalized human being, every black person, no matter what we say, they are marginalized. They are marginalized. They don't get the pay for the same amount of work, neither do women. Every marginalized person, every time you do comedy that denigrates yourself, you begin to believe it. And when she was talking about how she said it was a man that raped me, it was a man that... That's true, that's true. But that's because men had the power. I don't think men have the power anymore. I think it's, it's diluted. I don't believe I'm a feminist. I think I'm a humanist. Because I think that the way the world is going... We're abusing men. I'm sorry, I think we're abusing men. Because there are tons and tons and tons of nice guys. They aren't all Harvey Weinstein. And they're really nice guys, and they don't know what to say. They don't know what to act. They don't. You're married already. You're lucky. Mm-hmm. You went to go out in the dating pool now. You don't know. Mm-mm. What am I going to put on Tinder? My, my dick isn't looking too good today. I don't know what I'm going to do. It's, it's a terrible loss. It's a terrible loss. I did it again, of course, you know, because I love making jokes. So I was in the tube... And this really lovely white middle class, I'm assuming middle class, he was in a suit, got up and and gave me a seat. And then as he was going for another seat, another young, a young woman came and he gave her the seat. And I said, it isn't easy being a man, is it? I said, but you deserve it. It's all your fault. Yeah. He, yeah. Said, he laughed, thank God. Yeah. He could have hit me on the head. I said, no, you deserve it. It's yeah. But, and so it's a, it's it's easy for me. It's comedy gold, but mm-hmm. it's wrong because mm-hmm. we're all in this soup together, mm-hmm. and we've made this this society that has depersonalized everyone. Mm-hmm. We've made it. Yeah, do you think that everyone they're making everybody a, a monster? monster? That's right. Like it's like oh you're you're. I mean even it's like oh everyone is seen, but everyone is point poked pointed out their failings and, and highlighted it's brought into the light going, why, 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 am, why am I being shamed? It's like that's Catholicism right. all over again. Or, or, or that's Jew, right. You know, Judaism. Oh, no, Catholicism worse. Yeah. You know, just, just our mother shamed us. No, no yeah. absolutely. And, and, and it's, it's more than that. And then you go on Facebook and you say, oh, these people are having mm. all this good time. Mm-hmm. And oh my, I'll give you another example. I've been trying to get to the stand forever. Mm. Last time I was there, I wiped it up and they will not book me. Mm. 85-year-old woman, they will not. And I was just overwhelmed. Mm. And then I thought, no, this is the game you play. This mm. is the way it is. This is, this is uh, you're on the team and your team has practiced and it won because some guy started sneezing mm-hmm. uh, when, whenever when the other guy got the ball. Mm. This is the game. Yes. This is the, the game. game. It's all a game. You've got to just play it as best you can. Lynn Ruth Miller, thank you so much for your time. I've I thoroughly enjoyed talking Are to you. Are you going to edit some of that out? I'm, I'm going to edit every little bit. Look, it takes me hours. But Lynn, Ruth Miller, thank you so much for coming on the show. And where can we come see you? Where can we find you? What's the name of your blog? You can find me on my website. I know December 12th I'm at, uh, I know I'm at uh, Top Secret. Uh, This weekend I'm at the boat show. Hmm. Um, Are you doing fringes this year as well? I don't do it anymore. Don't get me started on the fringe or we'll never get out of here. I don't like what they're doing Hmm. to young talent. Hmm. I'm very angry. They've raised the price so much that it's a it's a it's a festival for rich kids, rich kids and people who have made it, and that's wrong. That's totally wrong. 
for you, the just beginning comedy, trying to just see how you do, to have to spend two and three thousand just to get into that fucking book and get PR and do your posters and then lose two thousand for what? For what? So I get very angry. And then you have to get digs, and if you're not willing to sleep under the bathtub in your friend's kitchen, you, you have to pay three times as much because the people in Edinburgh triple the rent then, which is unconscionable. So we can. Uh, so your website is what, and we can. Your oh, com. and that's your blog there as well. No, my blog. Some of the movies, some of the stuff is on. It's not as up to date as it should be, right. because I'm going to Germany, the fifth to the tenth. Yeah. I'm doing, and then I'm going to Sweden for International Women's Day on March eighth. Great, nice. And Barcelona on March fifteenth. It's been a good year. Yeah. This has been an even better year than my 85th. Great. But I've got to send this woman a note. I have a, Lady, thank you so much. It's been great. It's my pleasure. Brilliant. I just thank you. And I, I hope it, it gave you what you needed. Absolutely. And that was episode 66 with Lynn Ruth Miller. I hope you enjoyed that one, guys. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed recording it and editing it back and made me laugh out loud a few times uh, I'll go and see her live if she's over on a bill somewhere she's in Top Secret she's all around the place you will see her gigging all around London all over the world actually so go check her out very very funny and the we, person we mentioned on the podcast was Chris Kent he is the next guest on this podcast which is episode 67 which is quite a coincidence that we, that we mentioned him on the podcast he is the next guest he's very very funny he started exactly the same time as I did in Cork years ago and he kept going and he is absolutely cracking i saw him for the leicester square theater and he was there for the glasgow international comedy festival he was absolutely brilliant oh he was just such a a slow metronomic delivery oh, it was hypnotic it was brilliant very very funny guy uh, he is episode 67 that is the next podcast that is at the end of november and that's the last wednesday of that month a wednesday of november I'm not sure what date it is, but you know, you, you, you've got a calendar, you know, the last Wednesday of that month. Now, if you want to subscribe to this podcast, you can just go to Patreon. We're there. Type in The Comedy Defect Podcast. You can donate as much as you want. If you want to donate to the podcast, you can donate as little as a pound or as much as you want. Maybe buy me a coffee if that's what you wanted me to do or buy me a pint, whatever you feel would be appropriate. Or, you know, if you see me like at a gig sometime, just give me a fiver, put a place into my hand. I've had that happen a few times. It's very nice. It's very much appreciated. I'm going to keep doing this because I enjoy doing it. I might even do just some podcasts, which I'm just going to be talking. I'm just going to be just riffing and see what comes up and see what happens. We'll see where that goes. Because I don't know about you, right? I don't know about you if this is true for you. Uh, for, la for the last few years, I mean, I don't know, up to this age, I was like building things up in my head too much and make things into a massive thing that was a mountain I just could not climb. And I'm starting to get over that. And it's great. I just, not, just don't think about it anymore. Just go, just go do it. It doesn't matter if it's not perfect it's, because it's, it's a lie. It's never going to be perfect. You just got to do what you can do. Keep chipping away. Do what you can do. Otherwise, you're just going to get stuck and you'll be frozen in a more or less a catatonic state, annoyed at yourself as well. And, and that is just no good for anyone. Just, just go for it and do it. It doesn't matter if it's crap. Just do it. Just go ahead. I don't know. Maybe that's my um, positivity speech for this episode. But just try it. Just fuck it. Doesn't matter. Throw it away. Just do it and bin it. Do it again and then do it better. Do it again. Fail and fail again. Just do it. This is what this, maybe this is what this podcast is. Just an exercise in failing. Let's see how it goes. But if you want to donate to this podcast, you can you can show me that it's not an episode of failing. It's an episode of winning. And if you're enjoying it, whatever. You know. Look, I'm on Twitter. The Twitter handle for this podcast is at the Comedy Defect. You can follow me at Winter Dominus. And you can find 
all my gig dates on the internet under www.winterdominus.co.uk. All my live stand-up gig dates are there. Tonight, which is the, it is the, what date are we on? It is the 25th of the 10th. I am in Ardenal, Ardenal, I don't know how you say it. Ardenal Jailhouse is where I am tonight. I'm closing that gig. It's an interesting gig. The audience think that they're funnier than the comedians. So let's see what happens. But you can follow this podcast, as I say, on Twitter. We're there at The Comedy Defect. Follow me at Winter Dominus on my Instagram as well. Winter Dominus at Winter Dominus. That's me. Um, guys, uh, this episode was absolutely fun to record and edit. I hope you enjoyed it. I say tune in next month for Chris Kent, an amazing comedian. He's so hypnotic and metronomic, as I said. He's brilliant. But I had him at my gig a few, well, about, about a year ago. He's cracking. So go check him out. Another fellow Cork man. Brilliant. I'm not biased in any way. So guys, go check this out. So that's it. That's it for this episode. Okay, right. Um, we'll see you next month. <laughs>